Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings, comrades, and uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. This is the historical part of this week's episode, I suppose, because we're doing two. I asked on Twitter whether or not I should do Belarus or history, and, uh, well, Twitter voted for history. Meanwhile, Facebook, with a vast majority, kind of asked for Belarus. So I just had to take some time off and do both, I suppose. And this is also a specific episode, since, well, we are returning to the Stalin series. Not in a nice way, though, mind you. Stalin series were always among the darkest of every episode I've ever done. Ask Uncle Joe segment notwithstanding. However, this month is Holodomor, Memorial Month in Ukraine. And I think that this would be a nice restart, reboot, so to speak, of all the things that Stalin did after coming to power. Now, before we start this episode, this is kind of a... Weird thing here. You see, Ukraine, you know, if you've seen this flag, it's top blue, bottom yellow. Ukraine is known for two things. If you ask random people in the street, anywhere in the post-Soviet sphere, what do the Ukrainian flag stands for, you get, like, um, response about the top part would be either their bright blue sky or the Black Sea. But you would get an unanimous vote for what the yellow stands for. And the yellow stands for the fields of wheat. Why? Because the Ukrainian land was known as being the breadbasket of the Russian Empire. As I mentioned before, I think in some more earlier episodes, specifically more about Chernobyl, they have Raspustitsa, or total defrosting, I guess, which happens in April and May, where the whole road system, the parts that are not covered in asphalt, of course, but the whole road system, the whole countryside from the kind of early summer rains, yeah, it all becomes like warm butter. The Ukrainian soil is super fertile. Like, insanely fertile. Like, it's totally black and everything, and I'm gonna have to fact-check this because I've gotten double results from anything, but it was so fertile, the Nazis even exported some of that back to Germany in rail cars. But why? Because it was just amazingly great for growing crops. Now, obviously, it's not in Crimea, because Crimea is a tourist destination and mostly kind of a desert without... Waters from Dnieper, but still, Ukraine is super mega fertile. 
That was a joke that, you know, people don't throw out their apple cores on the street in Ukraine just because in two days you're going to have an apple tree there and, and what you're going to do then. There's also this idea that you can probably just throw anything in the soil of Ukraine and it'll grow. It'll grow to crazy, crazy lengths because it's, it's kind of like Kansas in the United States, I suppose, or, or some central French regions. This black, extremely dark soil, which kind of feels like fatty to the touch even in a bit. You know, this thick, moist soil, which is everywhere. Ukraine has been blessed by extremely fertile land. And they truly did feed everyone. However, in 1932-1933, Holdemar happened. Holdemar happened and um, one in eight Ukrainians died from hunger. How do you die from hunger in one of the most fertile places on planet Earth? The lower estimates of the death count are 3.5 million people. The high estimates are about 12 million people. If we're being rational and use the facts given by official sources, then uh, the numbers reach about 7 million people. 7 million people in the Ukrainian Soviet Republic and um, 3 million people more around Kuban, North Caucasus, Lower Volga, Kazakhstan. Because it was centered in Ukraine, but it wasn't just in Ukraine. That's the thing. How do you starve people in a country where you could literally just grab some grain, throw it in the field, and get a massive harvest guaranteed every year, year after year? This is a study that I'm going to be telling you today. And it's comparable to the potato famine of Ireland. Brutal. Very brutal. Extremely brutal and sad, and this is the case where Uncle Joe started really picking up steam, so to speak. It's going to be a dark one. That's why I separated this one from the Belarus episode. But this still has to be remembered, I think. Like I said, Holodomor is basically a genocide. It means plague of starvation from the word holod or golod in Russian. It's um, starvation and mor is either a plague or an extermination. Ukrainians themselves call it a genocide of Ukrainian nation committed in 1932-1933. It was committed by leadership of the Soviet Union in order to suppress Ukrainians' obedient and the ultimate elimination of Ukrainian opposition regime, including efforts to build an independent Ukrainian state independent from Moscow. In 2006, according to the Ukrainian government and their law about the Holodomor of 1932-1933, Holodomor was recognized as genocide against Ukrainian people. In 2010, by the resolution of Court of Appeals in Kiev region, yeah, there they proved the genocidal nature of Holodomor. The intention of Stalin, Molotov, Kaganovich, Postyshev, Chubar, Katachevich, Koshyar to destroy parts of the Ukrainian nation. Many died. And this was one of the most preventable diseases ever, except that this was completely intentional and completely man-made. After the separation of Ukraine in the middle of the 17th century between the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Kingdom of Muscovy over the next two centuries, the partition of Ukraine, the Ukrainian nation did not have its own statehood because, you know, they were all thought about, you know, they had Cossacks and everything, but they faced a lot of oppression. Political, national, cultural... Their own statehood was kind of lost in a shambles, even though they are actually older than Muscovy. 
Russia pursued a tough colonization of the left bank Ukraine. They also Russified everything, just like they did in the Soviet era. Of course, chauvinism followed and um, there was a nice little policy of um, special identification of Ukrainians versus Russian people. They tried to destroy Ukrainian national consciousness. And if you uh, think about special laws for special ethnicities, then, yeah, you know, uh, Hitler wasn't the first one. Ukrainians, as, well, most of the peoples in the Russian Empire who weren't ethnically Russian, felt the differences from the Russians very sharply. And there was a continued permanent liberation struggle from them. And for a while in 1918, just like us in Latvia, Ukrainians managed to create a Ukrainian state. The Ukrainian People's Republic and unite Ukrainian territories. As a little of a tangent, the side note, I've been asked by a lot of Russian listeners of the show, hey, why do you guys in the Baltics complain so much about the Soviet Union? I mean, look, we all lived in the Soviet Union and you had it better than in Russia. Well, maybe for Russian countries' side this was an improvement. For us, that marked a sharp downturn in the quality of life, since, well, in the uh, 1920s and 1930s, yeah, our small Latvia, with uh, at that point even tinier population than today, yeah, we were about on the same level as Belgium and Netherlands. You know, we had, um, at that point, people from the UK coming in to work in Latvia because we paid better salaries and our quality of life was higher than your average UK worker. We were pretty well off. And the fact that systematic eradication of all of our national cultures also happened, yeah, that didn't help either. This is a hard part which... Russians, which have only experienced the bad economic side of the Soviet Union, really couldn't tell. Even though Stalin killed a ton of Russians, but um, the very fact that if you weren't a Russian in the Soviet Union, you were a second-rate citizen, despite what it said on the paper about internationals and everything else, yeah, that struck a note. Everyone who is not a Russian in the Soviet Union were always subordinate to the Russians. Built by courtesy of Uncle Joe, of course. Uncle Joe was a fun guy like that being a Georgian, however, thinking that Russification and unification under Russian culture would definitely be the best thing, as that would make people more, you know, rulable, so to speak. In the 20th century, an independent Ukrainian state endured only for a few years. It was struggling with constant encroachment and interference of the internal affairs of the country from outside, mostly Russia and also Pilsudski's Poland, because... Um, yeah, although I personally like Pilsudski and some of his ideas, because I'm open to intermarium thought, he was a bit of an imperialist himself. Ukrainians sadly did not manage to lay the constructive foundation of their own independence, and, you know, they couldn't really strengthen it. After the third occupation of Ukrainian lands, the Russian Bolsheviks established Soviet power by force, using the puppet government, just as they did in the 1940 with Latvia. On December 30th, 1922, my favorite glorious workers' paradise, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was established, which included, at the beginning, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. The Union Treaty obviously called for full equality of republics, but I'll I'll, I'll let you figure out how that worked on your own. You know, because Uncle Joe's in command and... uh, Oh, everything was controlled by Kremlin directly with terrible punishments that were in Dubai. Hmm, I wonder why. Despite the short periods of state building, the Ukrainian tradition was, and still, has deep historical roots, which reach back to the period of Kiev and Rus. Let me remind you that Kiev and Rus were the first original Slavic nation. The 
this whole thing, Ukrainian tradition, United Nation, and strengthened Ukrainian nationalism and country, it kind of contradicted the Leninist theory of socialism, which included the merging of nations. Because, you know, being proud of your nation is um, wrong. Which is, by the way, why I find this funny that uh, today we have all sorts of very nationalistic socialists. Not Nazis, though, but Nazbals. They, they kind of scare me because Lenin himself was extremely against um, all this nationhood thing. After Russian Bolsheviks occupied the territory of Ukraine, they um, really could feel it. The Ukrainian spirit, that is. Lenin defined the national movement and issues of national sovereignty as a phenomenon of bourgeoisie character, with which the Bolsheviks were fighting against. Ukrainian nationhood was a great hindrance for existence of the USSR in the format in which the Soviet leadership saw it. With the approval of the communist regime, there were significant changes in the social, political, and socio-economic life in Ukraine, which affected primarily the traditional village. The Soviet authorities forcefully speared among Ukrainian people new customs, new rituals. Uh, by the way, again, if I'm mentioning Ukraine here, this happened everywhere. Latvia, Georgia, all the places. And what the Soviets did was, you know, they made us all, in this case Ukrainians, renounce their own past, forget their origins. It was basically just a massive attack on everything people held dear. And then Uncle Joke stepped in. See, Soviet Union was an agrarian state. A lot of the villagers still lived like they had lived hundreds of years before. However, Stalin saw everything, you know, as a means of preparing for war, and he was ruthless in his industrialization. He wanted to industrialize the Soviet Union in an extremely short period of time, no matter the cost. And I literally mean no matter the cost. He didn't care about people's lives. A million deaths are a statistic. Which might or might not be a true saying about Stalin, but uh, definitely his attitude was exactly that. See, in 1928, Stalin announced a policy of collectivization by combining individual private farms and the collective farms known as kolkhoz, which would then be state property. Which means that you should give up your farm and your land that you have fought for in the socialist revolution. No, literally, I mean those farms were given to people by taking them away from the nobles and the pomeshchiki and, you know, destroying all that system by Lenin himself. Because Lenin redistributed the land. That was one of his uh, rules. Land to the peasants. Okay, so um, people were not very happy that what Lenin gave, albeit with the tons of terror himself, but we've covered that before, to, um, you know, Stalin taking all this away. Stalin wanted to turn these kolkhoz into basically something where peasants would work together, just like workers did. Because a peasant person, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, is an independent person. Unlike a worker who relies on the salary paid to him by the state, a peasant, or a farmer, I use both terms interchangeably, I honestly don't really know the difference between them. These farmers can grow their own food, that means they're independent from the state. Which is why we got to such abstract, absurdist ideas that, you know, you were later allowed in the 60s to grow a certain amount of food in your, you know, home's back garden. But if you overdid it even by one centimeter, by one inch, although one inch is 2.5 centimeters and metric system is just better, um, you have people from the kolkhoz coming over and bulldozing them down. But uh, you know how Soviet people lived all this period from those little home gardens? There's a saying which is completely true. They pretend that they pay us, we pretend that we work. That went with everything. But yeah, the kolkhoz worked with the fact that um, they had to give what well, they grew to a year. They had to give to the state, right? 
So each farmer had a certain number of workdays for working off and on for what he was paid in the natural product. So you worked for your kolkhoz farm for a certain amount of time. You had a plan, just like in a factory. You know, produce X tons of potatoes. And for doing the plan, you would then be given back by the state certain amount of potatoes and food, not money, potatoes and other food, you know, just food. Basically, you could keep a percentage of your produce for your hard work. Consider how that motivates people to do things. <laughs> That's socialism, comrades. The state takes your cow and you get to keep, uh, I don't know, five, maybe ten percent of the milk. Amazing, isn't it? Obviously, most of the work days was um, so miserable and crazy and they had to work for these collective farms so hard that was just crazy that the people couldn't even feed their own families. They fed their own families and what they grew on, on weekends, they had no days off. And obviously there was a ton of resistance to this collectivization. This was kind of crazy because it was a dumb means. They basically wanted to turn all the farming system instantly in five years without any explanation or anything, just through collectivization and large-scale farming, which didn't work out. And everyone was resisting this because they couldn't feed their own families and they had ginormous, insane large quotas. Like I said, about 90% or more had to be given to the state from what you grow. And that's mad. And this is why Ukrainian villagers were forcefully dragged into collective farms by compulsion, terror, and propaganda war, with the centers on whom the regime hung the label kulaks, bourgeoisie nationalists, counter-revolutionaries, and physically destroyed those people by sending them to gulags or shooting them. This is a fun episode, I love it already. There even were like sayings they tried to dehumanize the so-called kulaks, which were actually just as more successful farmers. More successful farmers, farmers who actually weren't exactly that poor, because it's Ukraine. In Ukraine, if you were a farmer, you were pretty well off. One of the more dehumanizing sayings were uh, Russian propaganda posters stating that um, a kulak girl is worse than Laos. Seriously, that's not a propaganda poster. It, it was bad. It was really bad. And um, can you imagine what happens if you um, send off... People who um, know how to farm, shoot them dead through uh, propaganda campaigns. And they were shot by squads sent in from Russia who hated Ukrainians for their nationalism and who hated kulaks because, well, they were ideological communists, hardcore Marxist Leninists who um, just thought that they were the enemies of the people. Counter-revolutionaries, that is. Fun times. Hello there, and thanks for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. Have you ever wanted to have a one-on-one live session with Kristaps? Then listen up. The Eastern Border is trying out the new and exciting app called Wisdom. On the 11th of December, Kristaps will be waiting for you on the Wisdom app to answer any of your questions about the show or the Eastern Border, or to simply have a chat. Look out for more details on the Eastern Border social media and mark the date, the 11th of December, on the Wisdom app. See you online! This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. The policy of the Soviet regime provoked resistance of Ukrainian people. Well, obviously. There have been recorded about 4,000 farmers' mass demonstrations in the early 30s against colonization. Also against tax policy, robbery, terror, and violence. Done by Stalin. A sense of national identity of Ukrainian peasant, combined with his mental individualism, contradicted the ideology of the Soviet Union. That's also a thing, as when you think about Russian derevnyas, or villages, you think about all these little people living together. Meanwhile, for many places outside ethnic Russian territory, it was a different thing. We were more individualist. We wanted to be rulers of our own land, so to speak. See, this whole individualism, where people really enjoyed living in uh, kind of farmsteads away from other people, Texans will understand this one, uh, yeah, that pissed off the Soviets. This was a threat to the unity and the very existence of the Soviet Union. That is why the object of genocide was the Ukrainian nation. To weaken all the situation, the Stalin's totalitarian regime carried out a genocidal extermination of Ukrainian peasantry. And it wanted to basically destroy Ukrainian nation as a whole. The danger of riots and rebellions for the existence of the Soviet Union was well aware in Kremlin by Stalin's associates. Not wanting to lose Ukraine, the Soviet regime created a plan to exterminate the Ukrainian nation, which was disguised as grain procurement plans to the state. It was about the complete removal of all stocks of grain and other food and property confiscation as penalties for failure of grain procurement plan. After Ukraine was turned into this territory of famine, the regime cut off all the ways to salvation. Only Ukrainian and Cuban farmers were forbidden to travel to cities in Russia and Belarus to escape starvation. 22.4 million people were physically locked within the territory of the Holodomor. This happened because, well, um, in the beginning of this whole event, many Ukrainians escaped to Poland, that is how the world learned of the situation. That people were asked to give up extremely high grain quotas, and they could be shot or sent to gulags, and many did. And I wonder what happens when you send everyone to the gulags who know anything about farming. And this will tell you a lot, as a sidetrack and a bit of a future of this episode, that um, those people who were sent to the gulags and ate barely nothing were still allotted higher food rations than those who remained. Stalin, who considered peasantry as the basis of the national government, hid the Ukrainian peasantry as the carrier of Ukrainian traditions, culture, and language. In 1932, there was an unrealistic goal set for Ukraine for their grain procurement plan of... 356 million tons of grain. Well, I guess it's a bit more, because it's in Pods, which is a uh, Russian imperial thing. Uh, it's weird. Anyways, it's a ton. A lot. That was the plan, and um, so that it would be approved, the closest associates of Stalin, Kaganovich, and Molotov, uh, of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact fame, came to Kharkov. These people were informed about the height of the famine in the first half of the 1932 in Ukraine, 
which is completely man-made. The genocide was organized and committed by legalization of violence and mass murder of Ukrainians by government representatives. We have about 400 archival documents confirming this, by the way. In the early 1930s, the policy of colonization in Ukraine collapsed. Peasants massively abandoned their farms and took their property back. Livestock, stock, earned corn. To preserve farms and property in the hands of state, in August 7, 1932, the regime adopted a repressive resolution, which is known among the people as the Law of Spikelets. Many peasants actually resorted to shooting their own livestock and selling the meat, just so the Soviets wouldn't take it. And that would cost them dearly later. According to the resolution of Central Executive Committee and the Council of People Commissariats in the USSR, quote, about protection of property of state enterprises, collective farms and cooperatives, and strengthening socialist ownership, end quote, all the collective property equated to the state property, and for its theft, there was set a severe punishment. With a law like this, the state punished hungry peasants for harvesting the crop leftovers, crop leftovers, from fields, when they were tasked to give up insane quotas which they could never fulfill, for 10 years of imprisonment with confiscation of property or execution on the spot. In fact, the law took away people's rights for having any food. People ate the soles of their own shoes and they ate their dead. According to this resolution, there was organized a special group of people from, by the way, either Ukrainian collaborationists or people from other populations who carried out surges among the population in order to forcefully withdraw the grain. Five grain stalks would be enough to get you shot. Those searches were accompanied by terror and abuse of people. Massive ones. This is where the Soviet Union's hero, Pavlik Morozov, comes from. I do not know what sick mind invented this, but um, Pavlik Morozov's story is a famous one in the Soviet Union and shows the whole attitude of the disgusting socialist regime. It's a story about a little kid who betrayed his own father for being a kulak for hiding a single bag of grain. He is conflicted in the story because, but then he chooses the Soviet government over his own family. He betrayed his father to the foreign Soviet authorities and they shot them dead. Now, of course, in the story, the villagers then, um, of course, rip little Pavlik Morozov to shreds, as I totally support that they should have done. But this is portrayed as an act of awful villainy and counter-revolutionism, and probably isn't mentioned that whole the village was burned down afterwards. Pavlik Morozov, a nice little invented hero, traitor to his own family against an oppressive Stalinist regime. Those were the kinds of people that they tried to make there in the Soviet Union. But this wasn't the only genocidal decision when, you know, put, put all of Ukraine in lockdown, take away all their food, and shoot those who disobey, and, you know, also shoot the farmers who know their business. The next genocidal decision was establishing of food fines. The right of the state to take from peasants not only grain, but the food and property that could be sold or exchanged for food, which wasn't in any other Soviet Republic. To strengthen the famine in Ukraine, the Politburo of the SSSR, under the pressure of Molotov on November the 18th, 1932, adopted a resolution which introduced specific repressive regime, the blackboards. Being glued into blackboards meant physical food blockade of farms, villages, districts, the total removal of food, ban of trade and transportation of goods, ban of leaving for peasants in the surrounding of the whole place, the siege by military units, the police, the army. In 1932-1933, the regime of blackboards acted in 180 districts of the Soviet Union, which was a quarter of the area. 
Such oppressive regime, by the way, was used only in Ukraine and Kubine, in areas where ethnic Ukrainians lived. Kremlin created conditions of life that were meant to specifically destroy the Ukrainian nation by complete withdrawal of all food supplies. All these resolutions, specifically the resolution from the January 22, 1933, signed by Stalin and Molotov, blocked Ukrainians inside the starving territory, forbade them to leave the Ukrainian SSR and Kuban to buy any bread. For any other region of the Soviet Union, such a decision was not applied. The Stalinist regime declared famine in Ukraine is a non-existent phenomenon, and that is why I refused the assistance offered by many NGOs, including foreign Ukrainian communities and the International Red Cross. They exported the grain to fund tank factories. They killed millions because they decided that they were going to industrialize their way. Industrialization was achieved, but the cost was insane. On spring 1933, the mortality rate in Ukraine became catastrophic. The peak of Holodomor fell on June. Then the death every day took away 28,000 people. It's 1,168 people every hour. 20 people dead every minute. At that time, Moscow gave Ukraine some seed for sowing and some food loans. In case when food reached villages, it was provided mainly in form of catering and only to those collective farmers who were still able to work and live in their field conditions while everyone else starved. This all was carried out with insanely large stocks of grain available in the centralized state reserves and large-scale food exports. The state grain stocks were protected by Russian soldiers who would shoot anyone daring to do anything about it. If this isn't a man-made famine and a genocide, then I don't know what this is. Holdemar is scary. But yeah, the question is, once again, the fact that a lot of people in the West don't know about this. And again, everyone disputes the quantity. Most part of the researchers, like I said, advocate the number of victims over 7 million people in the Ukrainian SSR and 3 million Ukrainians in the other regions. However, like I said, lower numbers are 3.5 million, higher numbers are 12 million people. But these 10 million people seem like a fair choice. This is crazy. And the worst part is that, well, the calculations are complicated. There is a hard time of establishing those who were killed. The Soviet government did everything possible to hide the consequences of their crime. In places, it was forbidden to record the actual number of deaths. These days, the secret list of some village councils with list of deaths in 1933-1932 was as revealed. These lists are twice higher than the official data. It is totally clear that such cases were not rare. There was a ban to record as the cause of death hunger. That is why a lot of deaths are noted from typhoid, exhaustion, and of old age. In 1934, all the registry office books about deaths were transferred to a special department of the GRU. Ukrainians died out in families, villages, and not always the records were held. The level of unreported deaths is unknown, but it is clear that millions died. The Soviet Union convinced the international community to ignore and not to see the mass murder of Ukrainians by the means of propaganda, bribes of certain journalists. Oh, how life has changed. Everyone, you know, doesn't enjoy the fact that um, while all of this was going on, BT-2 tank suspensions were sold back to the Soviet Union. This was at some point, you know... A lot of people blame me for not pointing out the darker parts of the Western society. Well, I am here now. 
the darker parts involve helping this regime thrive for some reason. However, I have to give credit where credit is due. There were journalists who wrote the truth. The parts of ambassadors and diplomats are preserved. The regime took some more steps to erase the reports of, about the murder of more than 7 million Ukrainians. But the memory of the people is invincible and strong. And now, I get to talk about Holodomor and all the horrors that it brought. So that you too know that yes, during this time, the USSR exported all this grain taken away to, well, Western countries. Mostly United States still. So, fun times. This is one of the darkest stories of the Soviet Union. It is depressing and sad, but has to be remembered that Uncle Joe always found a way. You can say a lot about him, but he was cold, calculating, and ruthless. This is what he did to our people, and this is why I'm telling you the story. And I hope that this episode at least made you think a bit. I would like to end it on a positive note, though. A bit more positive. As our webpage is being brought back up... Uh, if you haven't listened to the Belarus episode about the politics, please do. This is coming out basically at the same time. And uh, I would like to give you a little info on a Minecraft server, which is important because some of you guys, which I know how listening to me, uh, to me in Russia and in Vietnam and other places where, you know, it might be hard to get the truth out. Well, you see, turns out Minecraft isn't banned in any country. So my colleagues at... Reporters Without Borders have made a website called The Uncensored Library. Just Google the uncensoredlibrary.com and you'll find it. See, as Minecraft isn't banned, what they did is they kind of teamed up with people who are Minecraft pros and a design studio and they built a massive library online in Minecraft where you can go in and read articles of the banned journalists and read the banned books in said country, they have wings dedicated to Russia, to China, to all the other places which are still hostile to journalists such as myself. And they have monuments to the journalists which were killed by the said regime. It's available for free. If you own a Minecraft account, you just have to join their server. Or if you are using a less than legal version because you probably can't afford real Minecraft, then you can just download the map, the world map, and go read it in Minecraft because it's still legal. And that is the way you can get information out. And furthermore, if you live in one of these countries and would like to own a copy of Minecraft so that you want, could read these studies, then uh, please, please email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com and we shall provide you with a free copy of Minecraft if you live in one of those countries where freedom of speech is not as well protected as it is here in the EU. And we will provide for you because I, for one, fully support this action. That, after this dark episode, was one thing that I wanted to share, as that kind of restored my hope in humanity a bit. Anyways, we've done with both Belarus and, well, we're not done with Ukraine, because we're going to see a lot more in the news about them soon enough, as you probably heard in the political one. So, hope you learned something, and no one's hands are really clean if you think about it. That was a bit of a scary one. We'll get to more happier topics in the future. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Thank 
Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.